And I'll be honest, it's a good thing we're kicking the kids out today and it's not the fifth Sunday of the month because, when we have the kids stay upstairs because today's message is definitely not suitable for kids. I'll be honest. Uh, so one of the things that surprises a lot of people about the Bible, because let's be honest, a lot of people don't read the Bible for themselves. It's actually this incredibly honest and human and sometimes seemingly off-putting uh, stories are included in this book. People have a whitewashed view of what's inside of here, but sometimes if you read it for yourself, you go, leave yourself scratching your head going, what is that all about? And I can't believe that God's book would include those details. Yet I love preaching these parts because I love showing people that this book is alive and it's active and it meets us where we're at. And sometimes we feel like we're such a mess, we could never fit with what God has worked with before. But then we read these stories and we're like, wow, those people were terrible too. And if God had a plan for them, then maybe he can have a plan for me as well. And so last year, I actually, as I was preparing this message, it brought to mind a message I taught last year when I taught about Moses and when God decided he was about ready to kill Moses because he hadn't circumcised his son. So his wife circumcised his son quickly and wiped the skin on the bottom of Moses' feet. And that is a very confusing story. And it's actually in here. And we can actually learn something from that. And right now, if you're hearing about that story and thinking, Ryan, you actually preached that? Yes. And today's message is going to be just as confusing. So buckle up because we're going to be reading a passage that probably many of you are not familiar with. And so this story is definitely a bit uncomfortable. But before we get into it all, I've got to tell you, so we're going through this series on flawed heroes of the Bible, important people in Scripture, but we also see that they're not all perfect. So in a lot of ways, we are a lot like they are. And today, we're looking at a story from the life of Judah. And there aren't actually a lot of stories about this guy. And most of them that he's in, it actually doesn't paint the prettiest picture of him. So Judah is the fourth born of the 12 sons of Jacob. So Jacob's early on in the Bible in the story of Genesis, and God eventually renames Jacob to call him Israel. So this Israel is the father of the nation of Israel. He has 12 sons. Judah is the fourth born. He is one of the 12 tribes of Judah that he's the one who fought, he fathered them. And the first time we meet Judah is actually in the story of Joseph. Yes, Joseph, the one with the technicolor dream coat. And when he and his brothers are completely fed up with him and they decide to kill him, he's the one that thinks, ah, maybe we shouldn't kill him. Let's just sell him to these slave traders who are passing through. And that was Judah's great idea. So that's the first place that we see Judah. He's also the one that later, when there's a great famine in the land, and Joseph, or 
uh, Israel and all of his family, all the tribe heads, they are starving to death and they need to go to Egypt and buy food. And he knows because they already met with Joseph, their brother, but he didn't know it, that he had to bring Benjamin, the youngest son. And dad said, don't bring Benjamin because if he dies, then I'm going to die. And Judah says, dad, don't worry about it. I'll bring him and I'll make sure that I bring him home safely. And guess what does not happen? Judah does not bring Benjamin home safely. So these early stories of Judah are not exactly the greatest. But for some reason, God graciously chooses Judah to be honored among his brothers. Listen to the blessing that Judah's father prayed over him before he died. So at the very end of his life, Israel, Jacob, uh, in chapter 49 of Genesis, he prays over every one of his sons. And the prayer over Judah is different than any of the rest. This is what he prays. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion who crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Do you guys catch the significance of this blessing that's prayed over him? Jesus Christ is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Because Jesus comes from the lineage of Judah. It's Judah's child that gives birth to a child, to a child, to a child. And we read about it in Luke and in Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus. We get to Jesus by going through Judah. So he's incredibly important in this entire story of the Israelites. Uh, the land of Judah is where the city of Jerusalem was built. When we read through the Old Testament, you read about how there is ultimately a split in the kingdom and ten tribes of the north didn't honor God at all. Two tribes to the south, one of them being Judah, honored God better. Still not great, but better. And so Judah comes out in a very positive light through almost all of the Old Testament. And then he's the lineage of Jesus. So that's why we can call him a hero of the faith because it's so important the role that he plays in the Israelite people. However, even though we, the stories we read about Judah found after Genesis 37 and until the very end of Genesis, while they may not be that flattering, we have to look at this one story in particular, which I think is the most significant flaw that we see in his life. So today we're actually going to do something a little different. Rather than having this passage on the screens, it's an entire chapter of the Bible that we're going to read. In Genesis chapter 38. So if you want to open your Bibles with me to Genesis 38, that's where we're going to be looking today. A side note, this chapter finds itself sandwiched between two chapters that really feel like they should go together. Genesis 37, the chapter right before, his brother, or the brothers of Judah, 
all decide they can't stand Joseph, the dreamer, who dad loves so much and has given him this beautiful coat. So they sell him into slavery and they pretend that a wild animal killed him. And then the chapter ends and we get this story of Judah and then we get to chapter 39 and it picks up the life of Joseph off in Egypt after being sold to Potiphar. So there's significance here in the story that we need to pick up on. But here's how it begins. Chapter 38, verse 1. About this time, Joseph being sold into slavery, Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. When he slept with her, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and he named the boy Ur. Then she became pregnant again, gave birth to another son, and she named him Onan. And when she gave birth to a third son, she named him Shelah. At the time of Shelah's birth, they were living at Kezib. So these first few verses is simply setting up the characters. Who's in this story? We've got Judah, and he has three sons. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Let's just pause there for a moment. Is that detail not a little bit startling? That all we see, Ur was wicked, and so God took his life. As Christians in the New Covenant right now, for us to hear about God being displeased with somebody and killing them seems incredibly surprising to us. And it's because if we don't understand the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the God of the Old Testament feels so different than what we're taught and how we pray and the songs we sing about God's grace and God's mercy. But here's the thing. In the Old Testament, God had a different covenant with the people. And this happened before the law was given. But in the law, God said, look, if you obey me, then I will bless you. But if you disobey me and you do your own thing, then I will curse you and your life is going to be hard. That is what life looked like before Jesus showed up on the scene. It was a very transactional relationship. Do good and God will take care of you. Do bad and he might smite you right off the face of the earth. Praise God that he no longer interacts with us that way anymore. That's why we sing these songs and we give God praise for his mercy and for his grace so that he shows us he is patient with us. And he's saying, just follow me. Follow my son. Put your faith in him. He wants us. He knows where this path leads of the old covenant. He watched it for thousands of years. No human being was able to follow the covenant perfectly. The only one who ever did was his son Jesus. And so that's why he had to make a new covenant. Because he knew none of us ever were going to get it right. Then we pick up in verse 8. It said, Then Judah said to Ur's brother, the secondborn, Onan, Go and marry Tamar as our law requires, or the brother of a, for the brother of a man who has died. 
You must produce an heir for your brother. This is kind of weird language here. We're unaccustomed to this, but they would have been very accustomed to this concept of if one brother has married to a wife and never given her a child, the next brother in line owes her a child to maintain the family lineage. This practice was so common, there's actually just a single Hebrew word that means this whole concept of a brother marrying the, the widowed, yeah, the widow, so that she could have a child. Like, I have to use a sentence and I get tongue-tied. They have a single word for it because it was just common practice. In fact, it was so common that God put it in the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, we see that God puts this into the Israelite law. But as you can imagine, it's not a very popular law. A lot of guys looked at it and said, you know what, I don't want to marry my brother's wife. I don't want to give her a child. I want my own children to count for me and for me to be more than just a surrogate parent for my brother's name and lineage. That is clearly how we see Onan thinking about this. So when we pick up in verse 9, but Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. This prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. So the Lord took Onan's life too. Wow, the story's starting to get very honest here. And what we see is Onan's like, yeah, I'll marry her. I'll have sex with her, but I'm not going to give her the one thing that she wants, and that's to conceive a child. Like, when I read this, I see him as being so selfish. He's looking out for himself. He's not at all looking out for her desires, her greatest desire, to simply have a child for the sake of her first husband. And as a result, God sees Onan also as being just as wicked as his older brother Ur. And God takes his life as well. Onan succumbs to the same fate as his brother. So now, two sons dead. She still has no child. But if you recall, Judah had three sons. Let's see where it goes from here. Then Judah, in verse 11 said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Sheila is old enough to marry you. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Sheila would also die like his two brothers. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. So now Judah's lost two sons. And you've got to imagine... There, it was definitely a world back then that believed in some goofy things, um, mysticism and things like that is how the people all around the Israelites would have believed. And I'm sure that he might have been thinking, maybe it's Tamar. Maybe she's the one who's cursed. Maybe she's the reason that I've lost both my sons and that they've died at such a young age. And so he has this fear. If I give her my third son to fulfill this obligation? What if he too dies without ever giving me a child? And so he sends her to her parents' home and tells her to wait until his youngest son is old enough. But we see in this text, he has no intention of ever 
fulfilling that. He's saying one thing, but what he plans to do is completely the opposite. Now let's look at where the story goes from here. Verse 12. Some years later, Judah's wife died. After the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira the Adelamite went up to Timnah to supervise the shearing of the sheep, of his sheep. There, it was a festival that would have been a big thing for everybody to go up to and gather for. Someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar was aware that Sheila had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village of Enium, which is on the road to Timnah. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she'd covered her face. So he stopped and he propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. How much will you pay me to have sex with me? Tamar asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, Judah promised. But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat, she asked. What kind of guarantee do you want, he replied. She answered, leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick you are carrying. So Judah gave them to her. Then he had intercourse with her and she became pregnant. Afterward, she went back home, took off her veil and put her widow's clothing back on as usual. The story just got really weird, folks, didn't it? Right? Like, this just took a turn. Like, now she's tricking him because he failed to live up to his obligation. She knew that he was never going to give her his third son. He'd already grown up. He'd been given, another woman had been given to him as a wife. So she took matters into her own hands to fulfill this obligation to have a son on behalf of her first husband, Ur, from that lineage. And this is messed up. Judah is now a new widow, and he's lonely, and apparently it's okay in his mind to just, oh, he sees what he thinks is a prostitute on the side of the road, and is like, hey, let's have sex. The honesty in the Bible, we have to just kind of drop our jaws, pick it back up again, recognize they didn't have the same morals at this point. This was even before the law had been given. They didn't have these rules given to them at this point yet. So Tamar realizes, hey, you know what? I'm actually also going to make sure that I take some identification from him so that I can prove who I was with. And so it's his signet that would have hung around a necklace is that identification seal and his cord and his staff. These things would have been marked and easily identifiable for each person. And she says, how about I hold on to these while you bring me the goat? But then she has no intentions of giving those things back. Let's continue in the story. Oh, and the best news of all in this, she became pregnant. She finally got what she wanted and had been looking for all along, and it came from the family of Judah. And interestingly, when we read in the New Testament about Jesus' lineage, Tamar 
is listed in the lineage. So this, that's a big part of why this story, you know, it's put in the Bible long before Jesus was ever born, but God made sure this story in its detail was included in Scripture because it's part of the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. Now, let me get back. Okay. So, verse 20 we're at. Later, Judah asked his friend Hira the Adelamite to take the young goat to the woman and to pick up the things he had given her as his signature. Basically, he's going to go pay, pay up uh, what he owed her. But Hira couldn't find her. So he asked the men who lived there, where can I find the shrine prostitute who is sitting beside the road at the entrance to Ennium? We've never had a shrine prostitute here, they replied. So Hira returned to Judah and told him, I couldn't find her anywhere. And the men of the village claim they've never had a shrine prostitute there. Then let her keep the things I gave her, Judah said. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but you couldn't find her. We'd be the laughing stock of the village if we went back again to look for her. So at this point, we see Judah's been duped. She pretended to be a prostitute. She changed out of one set of clothes to dress like a prostitute. Then, after they'd made love, she scoots and she vanishes. And so Judah's not able to make up and pay her the goat, but what it also means is she's holding on to his belongings. And that's significant to this story. So Tamar has slipped away. Now, let's get to verse 24. Here we go. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute. Isn't that fascinating that the language that comes back to her, him is, your daughter acted like a prostitute. He has no idea what has gone on at this point yet. And now, because of this, she's pregnant. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demands. Isn't it funny how Judah cared so little about Tamar? His daughter-in-law, he didn't honor at all the obligation he had to her. And then, when he hears that she's pregnant, all of a sudden, he cares so much about her infidelity. He can do whatever he wants. Remember, he has no moral issues with that. Finds out she's pregnant, bring her out and let's have her burned to death. Like, this just feels so completely unequal. His righteous indignation that has flared up. But let's keep reading. But as they were talk, taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Judah recognized them immediately and said, She is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son Sheila. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. Suddenly, when he sees his possessions and he realizes she did act like a prostitute and he was the one that she duped. But ultimately, she was the one who was simply trying to make right the thing that he had made wrong. He was not trustworthy. He did not keep his promise. He did not meet the obligation. So she found a way to do it herself. And he recognizes in that moment 
she's more righteous than I am. She kept that promise to her husband who passed away, that obligation she had to him, when I wasn't willing to. And so he was met with the fact that he had failed her in so many ways. But then, in the final verses, it comes to this happy conclusion. When the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered that she was carrying twins. While she was in labor, one of the babies reached out his hand. The midwife grabbed it and tied a scarlet string around the child's wrist, announcing, This one came out first. But then he pulled back his hand, and out came his brother. What? the midwife exclaimed. How did you break out first? So he was named Perez. Then the baby with the scarlet string on his wrist was born, and he was named Zerah. So ultimately, God blesses Tamar with twins. And we read about Perez was in the lineage of Jesus. Again, we get these very detailed points to show us how the lineage and the genealogy works for Jesus. And part of that is to show us that Jesus is a real man who comes from real descendants, and we hear their detailed stories. But right now, some of you might be wondering, Ryan, why on earth did you share this story? (laughs) And what are we supposed to learn from it? And I'm glad you asked. I think that Judah's flaw here is really important for us today. And that is that Judah proved to be untrustworthy with other people. He made a promise that he never planned to fulfill. And this story shows us that that was not okay for him. And that's still not okay for us to be people who make a promise and say we're going to do one thing when we never intend to meet that obligation. Last week, we looked at Abraham, okay? And we looked at how he finally, his flaw was that he stopped trusting God. But we also learned that God is a God who fulfills his promises, that God always fulfills every promise. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. When he says he's going to do something, he is going to do it. And we are made in God's image. We are called to be representatives, to represent God to the world. So how can we present God to the world through our actions? How can we live like Jesus, who is God, showed us to live and be untrustworthy when we worship a God who is 100% faithful and trustworthy? Does that make sense? God's very nature is one that can be counted on. And so if we are going to live and pattern our lives after Him, then we have to be people whom others can count on. God is faithful to us, and so we need to be faithful to those around us. That's why Jesus teaches what seems to be such a simple lesson in his Sermon on the Mount. He says the phrase, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And so many people struggle with that. In Jesus' culture, what was going on, the situation that he was trying to speak into was that he was, had people who were saying, you know, I'll make this vow, I promise this. But they'd make the vow with weird little loopholes in it that would allow them to break the vow but not be guilty of breaking the vow. And he's saying, look, 
If you're going to be my people, if you're going to follow me, then let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's significant. That's what people of Jesus are supposed to be doing. People should trust what you say you are going to do. There's no need for vows. Just do what you say you're going to do and be trustworthy. That's the bottom line of what Jesus tried to teach in that Sermon on the Mount. Unfortunately for a lot of people today, it doesn't seem to be that important of an issue. They don't think anything about making a promise and failing to meet it, failing to show up on time, failing to be there when they say they're going to be there. They, they might be scheduled to volunteer. They might even say that they are on the schedule to go to work. But if something comes up, they just cut out. Teenagers, no offense, you guys do this all the time. Teens are the worst. Man, I've had youth events, not here, at another church, where I'll have 15 kids say, yeah, I'm going to show up for that event. I can't wait. It's going to be great. And then the time's coming. It's like we're close. We're two minutes till 7 p.m., and I have two kids there. And I'm like, what in the world? We have an event. I was planning 15. I have food for 15, and I have four kids at the event. And they're like, well, I forgot that there was this thing, or my friend invited me to that thing. And they don't think anything of it. Like, something better came up. Of course I'm going to do that. It's not a value, they'd say. It's, what is it? It's no big deal. Don't worry about it. But here's the thing. God has called us to be people who can be trusted. Even worse when parents do it. And they do this to their kids often. Hey, I promise I'll be at your soccer game. I'll be at your band recital. I know I haven't been around for a lot of things. I've been really busy. But I'll be there for this thing. And then when you don't show up, you crush your child's spirit. Like that broken trust is not just something that reflects badly on you, but it makes this massive impact on those that you make these promises to. And I was thinking these, you know, this promise thing, your obligations, it extends to the quality with which you meet the promise. Like if you're always a half an hour late and you miss half the thing, or you say, yeah, I'll bring that dessert and it'll be this great cake and I'll take care of it. And you run out of time and you stop at come and go and you buy a bag of chips. Yeah, you kind of met your obligation, kind of. You know, but is that how God would do it? If he says, I'm going to bring the birthday cake, are you showing up with a bag of chips from come and go? No, God wouldn't do that. We need to, in quality you know, be there when we say we're going to be there. Do what we say we're going to do. Have, you know, fulfill the promise the way that God would fulfill the promise because that's his very character. And that's why God wants us to be like him because when people break their promises, they fail to be trusted. And what they do ultimately is they damage those relationships with others. Trust is so important to relationships and to how strong your relationship is with a friend, or with a spouse, with a child. Trust is the foundation. And if you can't be trusted, then how strong are those relationships going to be with others? Additionally, it reflects on your character. If what you say can't be believed, and then you tell people, you know, Jesus is so important to me and he can change your life too, why would they believe that? 
You've proven by your very character you're not trustworthy. So what you tell people how to live is not trustworthy. And so God wants us to be like him, to be faithful, to be trustworthy, to let our yes be yes because it reflects back on our character. And in being then a vocal Christian who is trustworthy, people are more likely to say, you know what, I trust your character. I trust how you live. And I trust when you talk about Jesus making a difference in your life. I believe that. Likewise, if we tell people we're Christians and we can't be trusted, they say, I don't really want what you've got. You're not honest with me. I can't count on you. So why would I count on the God that you're telling me about? We worship a God who is faithful in every way. He never breaks his promises. He never fails us. And his son Jesus tells us to go into the world and tell everybody about God. But the only way the watching world is going to ever believe us is if they see us as trustworthy, believable people who are sharing a trustworthy message. So I get it. It seems really simplistic. This whole message boils down to do what you say you're going to do. But it's a critical reminder because the fact is many Christians fail on this front and they don't realize how damaging it is to their lives. It damages people's perception of you as, and everybody around you as they learn they can't count on you. It hurts others who are counting on you and are counting on you to fulfill your word. It crushes the spirits of kids. It, when people are thinking, yeah, you're going to take care of me and you're going to do this for me, it just breaks their hearts when you don't come through. It challenges your credibility and it diminishes your effectiveness as a witness. And it poorly reflects the God who faithfully fulfills all his promises, even though you might fail him. So if this is you, if you struggle to follow through on your promises and commitments, I encourage you, to change your perspective on this issue. Stop seeing it as just a little issue. Stop thinking it's no big deal if you let somebody down. Oh, they'll get over it. They're resilient. They'll bounce back. They won't recognize that this is a significant way that you are misrepresenting your God to others. In this regard, we let the very nature of God guide our hearts and our actions. And as we honor our word to others, we prove our faithfulness to the one who first showed us what it means to be trusted. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray?